Just a wonderful passage this morning, Isaiah chapter 38. Would you turn there with me? Isaiah chapter 38, we're going to begin in verse 1. Something a little unusual today, maybe you've not heard a message on this before, I've not preached a message on this before, and it, uh, it is a wonderful passage as well. Isaiah chapter 38, we're going to begin in verse 1. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, went up to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order, because you're going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this powerful moment in history. I pray that you would teach us from it today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, before I even look at that passage, isn't that an interesting passage? Is that not interesting? I just find that fascinating. We're going to talk about the context of that in just a moment. But first, crybaby, whiner, sissy, ball baby. That was my dad's favorite, you ball baby. Crying your eyes out, wailing, blubbering, sorrowing, weeping, shedding tears, boo-hooing, sobbing, tearful mourning. When was the last time you cried? Or do you cry? Now, for, for some of you, uh, you, you cry all the time. Or you know somebody, and if you do, don't raise your hand. You know somebody, they just cry at the drop of a hat, as they say. They cry all the time. Sometimes they cry and they don't even know why they're crying. Nobody knows why they're crying. Or you may be one of those individuals that nobody's ever seen you shed a single tear. Not even your mom has ever seen you cry. Maybe you're one of those. When my daughter was born, our first child, Gabrielle, she didn't cry. And I kept waiting for the doctor to give her a whooping. You know, that's what happened to me. They hang you upside down and give a good whooping right off the bat. Teach a life is hard. They don't do that anymore. Uh, they, they didn't make her cry and she didn't cry. And, and I just thought, well, that's not fair. My dad grew up, as you know, in a rough time in our history. As a young man, he fought for years in World War II. And by the time I was born in 1964, he had concluded that crying was something that women did, not men. Which is ironic because he frequently offered to give me something to cry about. So in honor of my dad, today's sermon is entitled, Something to Cry About. How about that? <laughs> um, 
I had about 20,000 pictures to choose from, and many of them were adults. I just thought that was funny. Michael Trimble is a behavioral neurologist with the unusual distinction of being one of the world's leading experts on crying. <clears throat> In an interview with BBC News, he said, we don't know anything about people who don't cry. That is why they don't ever cry. He, Trimble says, uh, in fact, there is also a lot of scientists, or there are all, a lot of scientists who don't know or can't agree on about people who do cry. He says Charles Darwin once declared emotional tears as purposeless. And nearly 150 years later, emotional crying remains one of the human body's more confounding mysteries. Did you know that? Though some other species shed tears reflectively as a result of pain or irritation, humans are the only creatures whose tears can be triggered by their feelings. In babies, tears have the obvious and crucial role of soliciting attention, he says, and care from adults. But what about in grown-ups? That's less clear. It's obvious that, a strong, that strong emotions trigger them, but why? Of all the things they've been able to figure out about the human body, they haven't quite understood crying. My dad didn't understand it. He couldn't figure out a correlation between our anguish or our pain or our dissatisfaction in crying. In fact, he felt there, wouldn't, there shouldn't be a connection, which is why we shouldn't cry. This much is certain, I would say to my dear dad. Crying is a part of life. But it's not just a part of life. We see it throughout the Bible. And I think you'll be surprised at how often we see crying in the Bible. And I, obviously, I can't mention all the passages. I'm going to give you several, though, this morning. Passages that perhaps you know well or are some of the most famous scenes in history. And how quickly and easily we overlook the crying part that took place in those scenes. Um, so it is important in the Bible not only among women, but among men as well. In fact, of the examples you're going to see today, most of them are crying men. Not children, not women, but men. One of the first recordings of crying, and it happened more than once in this story, was a big, tough man named Esau. Way back in Genesis chapter 27, if you remember Esau's brother, the conniver, Jacob, stole his brother's blessing from his blind father, Isaac. He went to his dad because Esau was real hairy. And so Jacob wore this, um, this uh, lamb's wool. And so when his father felt that wool, he thought it was his son, his favorite son, Isaac, his oldest son, Isaac. And so he pronounced his blessing on who he thought was Isaac, but was really Jacob. Which is also interesting to me because Esau went to dad when he found out that his birth, or excuse me, not his birthright, his blessing, his dad's blessing had been stolen from him. And it had been. He was pure deception. That his father didn't immediately say, okay, I take that back, uh, null and void, let's start over with you. That's what Esau wanted him to do. And his father said, no, I can't do that. In fact, he basically said, you and your descendants are all going to serve him, your brother. And at that, Esau, big tough Esau, broke down and started bawling like a baby. <laughs> and so Esau, if you remember the story, decided he would just handle it by killing his brother. 
And uh, he plotted to do that. So Jacob ran away and was gone for decades in his life. Had uh, wives and children and flocks and herds and then God really prospered him. And finally the day, many years came came uh, went by and came to the point where Jacob decided to try to reconcile with his brother Esau, not knowing whether he would accept him or kill him. And so uh, eventually, uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 33, Esau and Jacob met again, and when Esau embraced Jacob, instead of killing him, Esau broke down and started crying again. They both cried, in fact, the Bible says. In Genesis chapter 45, if you remember Joseph, who was second in command under Pharaoh in the kingdom, didn't start out that way. He was sold into bondage by his brothers many years earlier as a slave, lived as a slave, and then was falsely accused, sent to prison for years where he languished in prison before God delivered him, he interpreted a dream for the Pharaoh, and you remember the story, he was made second in command in all of Egypt, only under Pharaoh. He had tremendous authority. There was a famine for seven years, and during that famine, his brothers, who had sold him into slavery, came to Egypt looking for food. And the grain silos were full because of Joseph and his faithfulness. They came before Joseph. They didn't recognize their own brother that they'd sold into slavery all those years. But Joseph recognized them immediately. Do you remember what happened? He had to leave initially because he just couldn't take it. He ran off to be alone to start crying. Finally, in a subsequent meeting with them, he had all of his attendants leave. So there was just him and his brothers and he revealed himself to his brothers uh, his identity as their long lost brother Joseph. And the Bible says that he cried so loudly that all of the Egyptians could hear him and they reported it back to Pharaoh. Men crying, they were all hugging and crying. In Exodus chapter 2, Moses himself, when he was a little baby, cried and it saved his life. He was in that basket on the Nile River when the princess, the daughter of the Pharaoh, heard the crying and rescued him. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, a young David uh, and his small army, this is before he became king, they came back to their camp one day only to discover that it had been destroyed and burned by fire and all of their wives and their children had been kidnapped and taken hostage as slaves by the enemy. The Bible says that David and his men, in fact, I'll read verse 4 in 1 Samuel 30. It says, so David and his men wept aloud. Listen to what it says. They wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. Have you ever been there? Where you cried, not, not just cry, but you cried so much that you exhausted yourself. You cried for so long that you just couldn't hold up anymore. If you've lost a loved one, you've been there. Somebody close and dear to you. If you've experienced terrible tragedy in your life, you've been there. And if you haven't, you will be. And so we see that with David. By the way, God was merciful. They ended up getting all of their wives and children back. Their families were, were safely returned and they overcame the enemy. 
But have you been in that place where you cried so much you became exhausted? In Ruth chapter 1, the passage that we've studied recently on Wednesday night, we see the the story of Ruth began with her mother-in-law, Naomi, who had gone to Moab from Bethlehem because there was a famine in Bethlehem. And while she was there, her husband died. Her two sons died, leaving her with her daughters-in-law. And so she goes back to Bethlehem. But before she goes, she says goodbye or tries to say goodbye to her daughters-in-law. One left, but uh, Ruth refused to leave. And it says they just embraced each other and they wept. They cried. There's a lot of crying in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament as well. Of course, they did not realize these three widows as they're embracing that God in the midst of their difficulty and their anguish, that God had this amazing plan for them that would change history. They had no idea that one of them was the grandmother of David. In Luke chapter 19, we know that Jesus wept over Jerusalem as they came, he and his disciples, near Jerusalem, and he laid his eyes on the city of Jerusalem. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He had seen Jerusalem through time. And he even made the comment that not one of the stones would be on the other, would be completely destroyed, and all the women and children and the men would be pulled out and killed of the city. He saw tragedy and death and judgment come upon Jerusalem, and he wept. We certainly know that very famous passage in the Gospel of John where Jesus is at the funeral of his dear friend Lazarus, that most famous of short verses, two words long, Jesus wept. There's a lot of crying in the Bible, which brings us to a few important biblical truths about crying. Number one, and by the way, I did a study through the Bible, and as I looked through these verses, I began to notice commonalities between some of them. And I would ask myself the question, why are they crying? What is the point of this? Why is God sharing this? And these are what, what came to me and are what quite obvious as well. Number one, God detests selfish tears. Selfish tears. This is the kind of crying that my dad didn't care for. He felt that we had to have a reason to cry. There had to be a reason, and it had to be a good reason, and Dad was the, the source of good reasons. He, he knew the good reasons and the not good reason, and for some reason, whenever I cried, it didn't seem to be a good reason. And that's why I would say, I'll give you something to cry about. I'll give you a good reason to cry. You don't have a good reason. I'll give you a good reason to cry. Well, sometimes in the Bible and in our life, we cry to God for the wrong reason. God may well be saying, why, why are you crying? You should be crying over this, not over that. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 1, we see an example of this. This is with Moses and, and uh, the Israelites. You know that story well. Numbers chapter 14, verse 1. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept. There's the word. They wept aloud. This is not just dissatisfaction. They're actually crying out loud, men and women. By the tens of thousands, if not by the millions, are crying. That's a lot of crying, by the way. All the Israelites, verse 2, grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt. 
or in this desert. Now, let me stop right there. They're crying, and the reason they're crying is because they're not dead. <laughs> I don't want to say that's not a good reason, but uh, that's not a good reason. Verse 3, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our, so apparently they would rather die by starvation or thirst, just not by the sword. I think I would prefer the sword. That's a lot quicker. Anyway, our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Of course, they had a leader, which was Moses. They just didn't want him. So here's God having to drag them into the promised land because they just want to go back to slavery. Isn't that odd? And why did they want to go back to slavery or die in the wilderness rather than go into the holy land, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey because it's too hard and it requires faith and they don't want to do that? That's a bad reason to cry. And maybe you're crying to God and God's going, what are you crying about? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to respond to that. I'm not going to bless that. And sometimes there's no question we are spoiled I don't know if you know that. We're spoiled. We live in a spoiled world, a spoiled culture, and we are a spoiled people, myself included. And sometimes when we cry to God, we're just thinking about ourselves. So don't expect God to respond to every tear for any reason. Number two, God does expect tears over our own sin. God expects tears over our own sin. Luke chapter 22, verse 59. This is a during the trial of Jesus as he's being condemned. Do you remember this? While he's being tried, Peter is the only disciple that's hanging around and he gets recognized several times. And finally he says this in Luke chapter 22, verse 59. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. They could tell by his accent. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Now listen to this part. I'd forgotten about this. The Lord, who's the Lord? Jesus. The, Jesus, the Lord, turned and looked straight at Peter. So Peter is watching the trial of Jesus from a distance. And at that moment, Jesus looks through all the, the, the religious leaders that are condemning him. And all the people, and he sees Peter and looks him in the eye. It says, then, uh, it says the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. Listen to verse 62. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Well, that's appropriate. Had Peter said, well, I guess that's that. Just went home like nothing had happened. There would be a real problem. It was the fact that he was weeping bitterly. He should be weeping bitterly. He messed up. He gave in to fear and panic and confusion. He was so full of himself. He was so arrogant. He was so puffed up. He was so assured that he would never deny Jesus. And here he was giving in to fear. He was weak. And he realized it and he wept bitterly. Your sins and my sins should cause some tears. 
before God. It should cause us to be moved because of our unworthiness before God. As a pastor, I'm not a, what you call a hellfire and brimstone guy. I don't browbeat you. But the truth is, our sin is of great concern to God. And it should be of great concern to us as well. When we go before God, God forgive me and you when we go before God with this casual, oh Lord, forgive me and just move on as though it were nothing. It's not nothing to God. He sent his son to die for our sins. So it's clearly not nothing to him. And it should be something to us as well. So he went outside and wept bitterly. God expects tears over our own sin. Number three, God can use our tears for his glory. I love this part. God can use our tears. He can use your tears for his glory. This is astonishing to me, and I love this. In Nehemiah chapter 1, we're going to see this in a minute. Don't go there yet. Nehemiah has received news that the wall, he's living in Babylon, by the way, all of God's people have been judged. God has destroyed or allowed Nebuchadnezzar a generation before to go into Jerusalem and destroy Jerusalem. He warned them through the prophet Jeremiah. They didn't listen. So God allowed Solomon's mighty temple to be destroyed. All the walls around Jerusalem are completely laid waste. You can't even tell there was a town there. It's just all rubble. So Nehemiah, growing up in Babylon, feeling convicted as one of God's chosen people, a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, wants to be faithful to God, wants to see restoration among God's people. He listens to a report that says that Jerusalem's basically been destroyed, the walls are all gone. And look with me, if you would, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. Nehemiah verse one, chapter 1, verse 3. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. This is what Nehemiah says. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. Now, you notice this is not the last chapter. It's the first chapter. In fact, it's the first few verses of the first chapter because it was this moment in the life of Nehemiah that was life-changing where he's crying and weeping before God because he sees the mighty city of Jerusalem has been destroyed and the, t and the temple's gone and the walls around Jerusalem are gone. It's a disgrace to God's name. And he wept. And from that, God used that moment to change his life. He's not an architect. He's not a wall builder. He's not a construction guy. He's a cupbearer. He doesn't know anything about building walls. But from this moment, God compelled him and called him and used him. He led a group of people back to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem, the entire city, in 52 days. They had no modern equipment. They probably didn't have any ancient equipment either. And somehow, by the power of God, they were able to build that wall in 52 days and reestablish the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. God can use your tears. Don't you know he's listening? And when our hearts are crying out to God and we are hurting and hurting for the right reasons, 
God listens to you and he will use your tears for his glory. Maybe a struggle that you're going through that he'll give you strength to overcome. Maybe you're on the wrong track in your life and he will use your tears to bring you back to the right path. Number three or number four, God hears tearful prayers. This is related one step next because notice that Nehemiah hadn't even prayed yet. He's just broken down and, and wept and God heard his tears or saw his tears. God hears tearful prayers. In Isaiah chapter 38, our passage for today, this is about King Hezekiah. He's having a tough time as a king. It's a mess. Our country's in a bit of a mess right now. We have a high inflation. And we're like $30 trillion in debt. And, uh, there's a lot of tension. There's a cold war going on between conservatives and liberals in our country. And we're under threat in, in the world. And it's just kind of a tense thing. And uh, we're dealing with that. But Hezekiah was dealing with something altogether different. He'd been king for a while, and now Assyria wants to destroy Jerusalem. And <clears throat> in fact, is on the brink of doing that very thing. They would encamp around Jerusalem and tried, tried to starve them out. They laid siege to Jerusalem, is how you say it. And on top of that, Hezekiah, <clears throat> in the midst of not knowing how to handle this and what to do and how to pull off an, a, a miracle in, in dealing with the Assyrians, he becomes ill, gets very sick. And in fact, Isaiah, God's prophet, gives a message from God to Hezekiah. And, and the message is from God, Hezekiah, you're sick and I, I've got bad news. You're not going to recover. You're not going to make it. So get your house in order because you're about to die. Which is interesting that God did that because normally God doesn't do that. He doesn't send a messenger to knock on our door and say, hey, you got a week left. You might want to, you know, write a will. We don't get a notice. He got a notice. But when he got the notice, it's an interesting response that he had. If you look with me in chapter 38, verse 4, And so, by the way, he cried. He, he went to God literally and cried before God. And then verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and tell Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. I have heard your prayer. Listen to this. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. Now, let me stop there just for a second. This is not a prescriptive statement. God is not promising you you get 15 more years if you just pray and cry. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, I'd shed a few tears for another 15 years. Once every 15 years, there'd be a lot of crying and we just keep extending it. God does not guarantee that. But for Hezekiah, he says that. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears, I will add 15 years to your life. But more importantly, in verse 6, he says, And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. That last brief sentence is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. One of my favorite sentences in the Bible. God is saying, you have all of this concern about your people and about Jerusalem. I got this. 
God says, I'll take care of it. Don't worry about the Assyrians anymore. I'll take care of it. <laughs> I will defend this city. Once God says, I'm going to defend you, it's a done deal. So he makes that promise to him. Isn't that beautiful? God won't always answer our prayers in a way that we want. Obviously, if he did, then no one would ever die. And no difficulties would ever come upon our life or the lives of our children. Then we wouldn't learn anything. But I do believe that God is more likely to consider the prayers given in tears and passion and sincerity than those prayers that we offer casually or half-heartedly. When I was a kid growing up, we knew the prayers. We learned them. Not from Sunday school. We just learned them out of culture, I guess. God is good. God is great. Let us thank him for this food. Amen. Or was it good food, good meat, good God, let's eat? You know, we learn those kinds of silly prayers. And the reason we pray short, meaningless unpassionate prayers over the meal is so that we can get it over with so we can eat the meal. Is that not it? When I was a kid, that was a technicality. God forgive us whenever we pray out of technicality, whether it's on Sunday morning or at mealtime or any other time in our life. Don't you know God doesn't care about that? The Pharisees cared a lot about it because Jesus and the disciples didn't pray before they ate once made a big deal out of it. Jesus, he wasn't, he wasn't interested. Now, I think generally it's a good idea to pray before meals. It's not biblically mandated, by the way. But what I am saying is whenever you pray, if you're going to pray, it should be from here, not just from here. You're just wasting your time here. You can pray to Jesus or Buddha or whoever you want from here. It doesn't make any difference. God's not going to go, oh, well, you know, he rambled that prayer out half-heartedly. I guess I better respond and say yes. No. You really think God's going to answer those prayers? Boy, uh, let me tell you, we on our knees. We're pouring out our heart to God. Tears are flowing down our face. God listens to those prayers. That's the prayers he's listening for and watching for. He's watching for your tears. Now, the good news is, if you're going through some tough times right now, if you're not, you will. When you pour out your heart to God, don't you know God cares about you? He knows your sincerity. He knows your need. So do that. Make your prayers passionate. Make them matter. Make them count before God. If you remember, and I'll give you one example of a woman praying, because there are many that did cry as they came before God. But there was a woman named Hannah in 1 Samuel, and I've alluded to her before. I've preached over her in years past. She doesn't have a child. She's being mocked by someone else for not having any children in she has been coming to God and praying and praying and praying. And she comes one day to the worship area and she's pouring out her heart to God. God's prophet Eli thinks that she's drunk <laughs> because she's praying with such passion. I mean, she's crying before God. And here's her prayer. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 10, it says this. In bitterness of soul... Is that not an interesting term? In bitterness of soul. 
I mean, just deep in her heart, she's struggling. Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. He would be a Nazarite for life. And from that prayer, God answered her and gave to her one of the greatest prophets in history, a godly man named Samuel. God answered our prayer. Now imagine, had she gone to the worship area and just said, God is good, God is great, can I have a son? Thanks. Nah, she wouldn't have gotten a thing. Poured out her tears and her heart to God. And then lastly, <laughs> my favorite one, God will end our tears. The day for crying will come to a close. In John chapter 20, when Mary, if you remember that, Mary went to the tomb of Jesus that Sunday morning. Nobody knows. She didn't have it in print in black and white with red letters like you and I. She just goes to the tomb to help prepare the body because they didn't have time to put those spices on it, uh, on Jesus uh, on Friday because it was in such a hurry to get him off the cross and getting into the tomb before it got dark. So now she wants to do it right. She, she had some other ladies that had been with her and she goes to the tomb. The stone is rolled away and she realizes he's not in there and she's really bewildered. She is emotionally distraught and she just starts crying. She doesn't know what to do. Sometimes life is that way, is it not? You don't know what to do, in, and that's okay. You don't know what to do in life, and you're so distraught in, in not knowing which way to turn and which way to go and what to do that you just start crying. There's a gardener in the tomb. She thinks, <laughs> she thinks it's the gardener. And he goes up to her, and the first words that Jesus speaks, the very first words, the first sentence after the resurrection, he asks her a question. Do you remember the question? Woman, why are you crying? Now, what does he mean by that? Does he know why she's crying? He doesn't need information here. He's now the glorified Christ. He has regained all of his glory, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his transcendence. He knows everything. Of course he knows why, he's, why she's crying. He's asking her the question because she's crying for no reason at this point. She thinks she has a great reason to cry because she loved Jesus and she's distraught over the absence of his body. She doesn't realize yet that he is resurrected, that he's had power and authority over death, that, that his resurrection means eternal life for her and for everyone who will believe then and in the future for the billions that would come. And so Jesus says, woman, why are you crying? It's time for the tears to end. And in the next sentence, she realizes as he calls her by name and she recognizes him and suddenly her tears of confusion turn into tears of joy. 
God will end our tears. That famous passage in Revelation chapter 21 at the end of the Bible, as you know well, that God says, I will wipe every tear from your eyes. And in heaven there will be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, no more death. There is a time to cry. But there is a time also for crying to end. By the way, when God answers those prayers, don't keep crying out as though the prayers have not been answered. Wouldn't it have been odd if Hannah had woke up the next morning or the next year after her child had been born, Samuel, and she just started crying as though he had not been born? Wouldn't it have been odd had Mary in the tomb woke up the next day and started crying going, where is he? I don't know what's happened. As though nothing had happened? That would be silly. Well, if God answers your prayer, stop crying and start rejoicing. When Jesus was eating dinner one night with a group of religious leaders, they didn't care for him much. They didn't honor him or respect him. They didn't even wash his feet. They were filthy. Well, a woman comes in, not a very good reputation. She comes in. And she decides to wash his feet or ends up washing his feet. She's bowing down at his feet to the horror of the religious leaders there and their their skepticism. And she's actually washing his feet, not with water, but with her tears. And that was meaningful to him. It may be we as God's people are not crying enough for those that are hurting around us, for the injustices in this world that are happening all around this world, in the Ukraine and everywhere else where there is war and where people are suffering and facing terrible injustice. We sue McDonald's because our coffee's too hot. We don't really fully understand the injustice that's happening in this world because we're wrapped up in this little bubble that we live in, but there are terrible atrocities being committed as I speak. And many of them are against God's own people for their faith in Jesus Christ. Do we cry for them? Do we even lift them up in prayer? Maybe we should be crying much more than we are for the right things, for the lost, for this dark world, for justice, for the innocent, for the innocent, for mercy for all. And for so many in our world who desperately need hope in Christ. Now that's something worth crying about. Have you cried lately? Pray with me. Father, this morning as we come before your throne, and we are before your throne, we are in your presence. Forgive us for those times that we've come before you without a single tear. And that our prayers have become so mechanical and so ritualistic that they just are technicalities and nothing more. Forgive us for our lack of concern, for our lack of absence of broken hearts, for our lack of compassion. Thank you for being patient with us. Father, may we come before you right now in heartfelt anger.
for those around us who are hurting, for this world who so desperately needs Christ, for our brothers and sisters in Christ that are being tormented and tortured. Though they are not victims, they are victors under the hands of a sovereign God. Father, they are still hurting right now, and we lift them to you. Father, help us to be a passionate people. May we be willing to shed some tears for those in need. As you're praying, no one's looking around. Can I challenge you today? Whether right where you are, or on your knees, on these steps, to come and pour out your heart to God, just like Hannah. I believe that God responds to the tearful prayers of His people. We see that in God's Word, and I believe it to be true. It doesn't mean He'll just grant you whatever you want for whatever reason, but God desires sincerity. Will you be willing to do that now? We're going to have a moment of invitation where you can come down and do that very thing, or maybe God is calling you to give your life to Christ sincerely, or maybe God is leading you or your family to join with this church. We want you to know you're welcome here. Just come down and say, Pastor, we would like to join. Or if God is leading right now, you can come in here and pray and pour out your heart to God. He's waiting. As we're praying, no one's looking around. Would you stand? And as you stand, as we pray,